This morning's talk is called Entering the Stream. I'd like to begin with a, an analogy for what secular Buddhism, or should we say the secularization of Buddhism, might be about. And this will be an analogy drawn please don't groan, from the computer industry. We might imagine, as we do with computers, that we have an operating system. Um, I'm a Mac user, so let's call it OS X. (laughs) On which we can run a number of software programs I can use Word or Photoshop or iMovie. All of them are only able to work because they are compatible with the operating system OS X. We might think that all forms of Buddhism that we uh, currently um, uh, know of Theravada Buddhism, the Tibetan schools, Zen Buddhism, Pure Land Buddhism, Nichiren Buddhism. These are all like different software programs that run on what we might call Buddhism 01, a common operating system. And Buddhism 01, in a sense, is... Uh, the operating system that has been around since the time of the Buddha, and it could roughly be equated with the worldview of ancient India, a worldview that includes multiple lifetimes, that includes an idea of being born according to the actions that you commit, and is aimed at the liberation from the cycle of birth and death. And this is a, an operating system that also runs Jainism, Brahmanism, Hinduism. It's the, 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 the common set of concepts and ideas, the world picture, if you wish, on which these different programs can run. Now, in the secularization of Buddhism, we may not be anymore in the business of writing a new software package called Secular Buddhism. But it might be more a question of rewriting the operating system itself to produce something that might be Buddhism 02, a worldview um, inscribed in this system that does not assume the uh, picture of the world according to classical Indian cosmology and soteriology. And I know this sounds terribly arrogant. But perhaps that's what is needed, in a way, uh, 
Um, I'm not sure that for many people in this world, the old operating system works very well. And we perhaps need to revise it. It doesn't mean to abandon it altogether, but it means somehow to re-update it, let's say, upgrade it, in a way that it, the, the practice of the Dhamma is, in a sense, working with um, an operating system that is perhaps more congruent, more suited to the kind of world informed by the natural sciences, informed by the kind of global culture that's emerging, rather than remain committed to the ancient Indian way of thinking. I think at the core of this process of secularization lies the redrafting of the doctrine of the Four Noble Truths, which when presented as truths, and we noticed yesterday that that's actually questionable, whether the Buddha even used the word truth in this regard, it becomes a process that we might better think of as Four Noble Tasks. The truths, in other words, the core dogmas of the Buddhist operating system are that experience or life or is, is dukkha, that the cause of dukkha is craving. We need to remember here too that the cause of dukkha as craving is not um, an original idea to the Buddha. We find this idea going right back to the Vedas and the Upanishads, that the word craving isn't used, but the word karma, K-A-M-A, desire, is seen as the source of the world and the source of suffering. The idea that the ending of dukkha um, is the cessation of craving in some permanent way, that's the third, as it were, dogma, and the fourth is that the Noble Eightfold Path leads to the cessation of suffering. These are four propositional truths. And they are presented as statements which claim to be true. If we let go of the whole idea of talking in terms of truth and instead present the Dharma entirely as a sequence of tasks to be recognized to be performed and to be accomplished and that each task is the precondition for the one that follows, we arrive at something that we might call ELSA. Capital E, capital L, capital S, capital A. So we might even call this operating system ELSA like Apple calls its operating systems Panther or snow lion or wombat or something. <laughs> now Elsa boils down to embrace, let go, stop, act. Embrace dukkha, in other words, totally embrace the life situation you find yourself in. In this model, 
we're not claiming that life is suffering or even that there is suffering, which is a more accurate translation. But we're concerned with doing something about it. In other words, uh, this particular way of looking at it is not descriptive, but prescriptive. In other words, the Buddha is not trying to describe the nature of reality correctly. That's the truth idea, getting it right. The Buddha is interested in uh, prescribing a course of action in regard to what life presents itself to you at any given moment. In other words, when dukkha, birth, sickness, aging, death, etc., one whole existential situation arises, then the prescription, the injunction, the suggestion is embrace that. Embrace it totally. And not just once, but as an ongoing relationship to your lived experience until the moment you die. And that embrace allows for the falling away, the dropping off, the letting go of the habitual strategies of craving, clinging, etc. that instinctively rise up, samudaya, as our conditioned response to life. And as that pattern of behavior falls away, not just once, but endlessly, as long as we live, we reach moments in which we find that we have stopped, that that strategy is for the moment in abeyance. There's a stillness, there's a peace, there's an openness, there's a quiet, which we touch on retreat in particular. It's not some elevated experience reserved for the spiritual elite, but it's a possibility that is open to us in each moment. And from that stopping, we find another ground on which to <coughs> act. And the act, the action is how we think, how we speak, how we physically act, how we work, how we apply ourselves, and then again, how that provides a ground for paying attention, being mindful, focusing our awareness, being concentrated, cultivating samadhi, which again allows us to see more clearly and more deeply the condition of life we are in. In other words, we're back to embracing our situation once more. And so it goes on. And what's being described here, I think, is very much a, a process which the Buddha calls a stream. For the last few of these talks, we've been looking at how uh, what lies at the very heart of this, and I think we can almost extend that metaphor uh, to call it the, the heart beat or the pulse of the Dhamma, is found in this expression, whatever arises, ceases. In other words, 
we embrace life and what arises habitually, the craving, the grasping, falls away. It ceases. But that's not the end of the project. It's through the ceasing of something that new possibilities can arise. And those new possibilities are the way of looking at the world, ourselves, making choices that are not conditioned by craving. They are unconditioned. Again, in the truth model, the unconditioned gets raised up to some kind of absolute truth. And enlightenment is about experiencing the unconditioned. As though that were some kind of reality out there somewhere or in here somewhere. Almost always privileged with a capital U. But when the Buddha talks of what he means by the unconditioned, and there are several suttas that, um, in which he does this, he says, I will teach you the unconditioned and the path leading to the unconditioned. What is the unconditioned? It is the ceasing of greed, of hatred, of delusion. In other words, as I would interpret that, it means living un conditioned by those instincts, habits, drives. He turns it into a verbal uh, process rather than a description of a state. And that is the experience of Nibbana. It is the, it is the experience of the freedom that opens up when you realize you are not beholden or um, conditioned to behave according to the imperatives of your fears and your desires. So when we use the word freedom or liberation, it's not some ultimate state, but actually it is always a relative condition, one in which you are free or unconditioned by free from, unconditioned by, and also therefore free to act differently. You're unconditioned by those habits which makes you free to live from another place within yourself altogether. And that opens up the path. So we have the, 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 the ceasing the stopping, even if it's only momentary, that opens up the free space in which a new response can arise. So there's a ceasing and there's the arising of the path which brings you again into another frame of experience, an ethical frame, you know, right speech, right action, right livelihood, that creates the ground for Stopping again, for ceasing, being attentive, being mindful, being focused. And that allows you to embrace your condition from perhaps a, a greater pitch of authenticity and depth. And so it goes on. And this process really, I feel, 
is a stream. We can also think of the whole process in terms of emptiness. Again, we must be careful not to reify emptiness, to turn it into, again, something like the unconditioned or uh, the absolute truth or whatever. But emptiness is always empty of something. So when we embrace our life situation, dukkha, we also embrace the fact that it is empty of any fixed inherent self, any fixed inherent things. When we find ourselves letting go of our opinions and views and habits, that is again is exactly how Nagarjuna describes emptiness, the letting go of opinions when we experience moments of stopping, of nibbana, that too Nagarjuna describes as emptiness. Uh, in later Mahayana works, like in Shantideva, he talks of this as the natural nibbana. The nibbana that is the, 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 the stopping, as it were, or the, the, what, it is, what it is in a sense that enables the natural life processes to emerge and fade away because they are not intrinsically existent, that they're totally contingent and conditional. In that sense, they're empty. And to experience this stopping is to experience, in a sense, the release from everything within us that somehow puts a break, puts a constriction on our capacity to live freely and openly and spontaneously. And then the path, the Eightfold Path, Nagarjuna identifies that with emptiness. He says the, the emptiness is the middle way. In other words, a path, if you think about it, is quite literally an emptiness. There's nothing there. You see the path wind across the hillside, what looks like a brown or a black trail imposed on a green ground but when you go up to it and you look for it the path you find that it's actually the absence of grasses or the absence of rocks and boulders and thistles and stuff that would otherwise get in your way way path same word so a path the eightfold path any path even Highway 1 that goes down the coast, is actually an emptiness. It's an emptiness of any obstruction or impediment to free movement. A path is what allows you to move without impediment. And so when Buddhism talks about hindrances and obstacles, these are hindrances and obstacles to the free movement of the path. And that's why they get in the way. They frustrate us, they block us. So we can see how the idea of emptying, emptiness, runs right through this process. It could even be seen as the kind of the vital breath of Elsa, of embracing, letting go, stopping and acting, embracing, letting go, stopping and acting. 
So we have here um, an image of a stream, of a flow, that it's sometimes called in some modern psychologies. It's an experience that I'm sure all of us have, have had, an experience we might often touch in meditation, even when we're sitting still, doing nothing, except perhaps paying attention, rebalancing intimacy, as Temple mentioned last night. And the subjective feel of that is that we're somehow flowing, that there's something enlivening about this experience, even though we're not doing anything. And yet a meditation which we judge after the event as not a particularly good sitting is often so judged because we feel we've somehow never been able to get out of a certain sense of constriction or blockage or hindrance or obstacle. And it's here that we find the... uh, we can use, I think, very effectively this powerful mythological metaphor of Mara. Mara literally means, Mara is the devil, the demon in Buddhism. And Mara, the word, literally means the killer. It's rooted in the Sanskrit word murtu, which means death. Mara is death, a kind of inner death. And if Buddha is the, the counterpoint or the opposite of Mara, then Buddha is a metaphor for life, for living, for flowing, for being in this stream. And this water metaphor um, is likewise used um, in relation to Mara, but in the counter sense. Often Mara is called Namuchi, N-A-M-U-C-I, Namuchi. In the earliest passage regarding Mara that we find in the Pali Canon, it says that the Buddha was, or the Bodhisattva actually, was seated by the Neranjara River, absorbed in deep meditation, and then Namuchi came up to him and said, Namuchi, who the hell is Namuchi? Namuchi is a figure from Vedic mythology. A figure who is responsible for drought. In other words, Namuchi is, I think from at least one scholar has said, literally means the one who holds back the water. And in, in India, which is characteristic of the whole cycle of the seasons in India, the survival of life on that subcontinent is totally dependent on the monsoon, on the rains that come in the summer. And in the the Vedic times, they thought that when the monsoon didn't come, it was being held back by Namuchi. Namuchi was the drought demon, as it were, who prevented the rains from falling. I don't know if you've ever been in India on the build-up to monsoon, but often the several days where the, the heat and the humidity are oppressive. 
and you really feel that something is just unable to break out. And so what happens in the Vedic mythology is that Indra, who's the king of the gods, he zaps Namuchi with his Vajra, kapow, and Namuchi then releases the reins. Now a very similar but different and clearly you know, disconnected uh, myth is found in Dante's uh, Inferno. In Dante's Inferno, as I'm sure many of you know, Dante, in the company of the Roman poet Virgil, is um, taken on a journey through hell. And he descends the various circles of hell. I think there are nine circles of hell. And in most of the upper circles, he sees all these people being tormented and having Hieronymus Bosch-like experiences. But when they get to the bottom of hell, they find themselves on a vast plain of ice. And from the center of that plain, there is blowing this cold wind. And Virgil says to Dante, you know, head into the source of that wind. And so they walk across the ice and they see uh, frozen in the ice these uh, sinners uh, who are trapped, not now by the torments of fire, but are trapped in freezing, lifeless um, stasis. Again, Buddhism is similar. It has hot hells and cold hells. One of the cold hells is rather amusingly called Achu. <laughs> and so Dante walks across the plain of ice and in the very center of this plain he finds Satan. And Satan is sunk in the ice up to his chest and he's waving his six bat-like wings which are a para, sort of a mockery of the wings of the, of the angels. And that's what's creating this cold wind. So the image here of Satan is pretty much the same as the image of the drought uh, demon holding back the water. Here the water is unable to flow, not because someone's holding it back, because it is frozen. And this, I think, points to a, a very deep commonality between the, the Judeo-Christian and the, and the Buddhist idea of, of the demonic, the demonic is actually what freezes you up, what uh, constricts you, what blocks you. The Buddha calls Mara sometimes Antaka, the one who creates dead ends. Anta, ends. The one who blocks your path. So all of this imagery, whether it be psychologically presented as the hindrances or whether it be mythologically presented as a drought demon, is the very opposite of a life that is flowing, a life that is unblocked, a life that has entered this stream. So... 
what does the Buddha mean when he says the stream? There's a passage here. This is, most of this will come from Sanyutta Nikaya 55, which is the penultimate chapter of the Sanyutta Nikaya, which is just, it's called the Sotapati Sanyutta, the connected discourses on stream entry. It's a very, very good source to look at. And we have the Buddha saying, Sariputta, we say, the stream, the stream. Now what, Sariputta, is the stream? And Sariputta replies, this noble eightfold path is the stream. That is complete seeing, thinking, etc. Sariputta, the Buddha continues, we talk about a stream enterer. A stream enterer. What now, Sariputta, is a stream enterer? And Sariputta says, one who owns or possesses this noble eightfold path, venerable sir, is a stream enterer. So again, the stream refers to the fourth task, to create or cultivate a path, the eightfold path. What does it mean to possess the stream, to possess the path? To possess something means that it becomes your own. You own it. It's no longer something that you've borrowed. It's no longer something that you've maybe misappropriated. It's become your own. And what this points to is how at this, um, at this point in your life, your path is not something that you, as it were, have to learn about from someone else, some authority figure, and try and approximate to it, but actually it's become part of the current of your own existence. It's become your own. It's something that now lives within you, something that unfolds within you. Now, often in, um, in Buddhism, stream entry is regarded as a rather elevated state of enlightenment. And I suspect if you ask many Buddhist teachers even, are you a stream enterer? They would get terribly coy and, and shy and uh, very self-deprecating and try and avoid the question. I feel that that is, again, probably an indication of how um, Buddhism as a religion has tended over the centuries to elevate these states to increasingly uh, unattainable heights, except, of course, for those in authority and power. But here we have an idea of something that is, in a way, accessible. It's the, it's, it's, it's the, it's the making that... Eightfold path, your own. Now the whole section on the topic of stream entry um, starts actually with uh, this passage where, well this is section 2 of chapter 55. And the Buddha says, monks, a disciple who possesses four things is a stream enterer. What for? Here, monks, 
a disciple possesses confirmed confidence in the Buddha. A disciple possesses confirmed confidence in the Dhamma. And a disciple possesses confirmed confidence in the Sangha. And he possesses the virtues which are dear to the noble ones. That's a stream entry. Now, I remember when I first read that, um, after many years of not knowing about these passages, I found that rather strange. And my reaction, which might mirror some of yours, is, wait a minute, I thought that was taking refuge. That's what I did when I joined the Buddhist club. (laughs) And now it's being presented as stream entry. What's going on? Well, I think a couple of things are going on. Uh, First of all, stream entry is not described in this passage as the attainment of some specific spiritual state or realization. We'll come to that in a minute. But it's presented really as a reorientation of your life around certain values. The, 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 The three jewels, as they're called, the three refuges, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, are not things that one just has faith in, but are actually ways of talking about a framework within which you reorient your life in a fairly fundamental way. In other words, you embrace the idea that you want to live in each moment of your life, in a way that is more awake. Perhaps you think of this in the longer term, of embarking on a path that will lead you to uh, a kind of awakening that the Buddha had. You commit yourself also to pursuing a way of life, a practice that is called the Dhamma, that will help you move towards the realization of that goal. The Dhamma, remember here, means more the practice. It doesn't mean the teachings, although the teachings are only of any real purpose or value if they enable you to do something different and pursue that practice to cultivate mindfulness, to cultivate loving-kindness, to cultivate sympathetic joy to cultivate samadhi, to cultivate insight. That's the practice of the Dhamma. And that's what you take refuge in. That's what you entrust yourself to do. You give yourself in a confident way to that process of living. That's your practice of the path. And the third aspect of this reorientation is to nurture friendships and relationships with those who enable and empower you to embark on this path. They give you support. So the support that the community gives is the support to, um, to in a sense, bring the Eightfold Path into being. And sometimes this support will be through uh, giving instruction or teaching. 
At other times, it'll be simply the support of being there for one another. Knowing, even if you're on a retreat or by yourself or you're off in your workplace and there's no one that's very close to you around, that you know in your heart that your presence there is somehow tacitly supported by the key friendships in your life. People are there for you, even though they might live a hundred miles away. And I feel as one, in a sense, continues on this sort of path, the, the experience of Sangha is not so much a question of coming together at fixed points during the week and meeting together as a bunch of bodies in a room, but actually being more and more confident in the, in the resilience and the strength and the presence of certain people, um, whether teachers or friends or whatever, who somehow are with you in this process. That's the Sangha, really. And the paradox, in a way, is that the purpose of Sangha is not to get everybody to sing from the same hymn sheet, to hold the same beliefs, but rather for that community to empower each person to realize their own potentials as a person. In other words, it supports the process of individuation. And in fact, that's another element of um, stream entry that again occurs in many passages in the canon, that the person who has entered the stream has become aparapachaya, independent of others. Now we must be careful here not to think that this is a sort of recipe for individualism, but rather such a person has made the path their own, but part of that path is realized through the cultivation of friendships with others. And so a supportive Sangha member is someone who supports you in your own individuation and vice versa, you support them in theirs. Martin Buber, in one of his books, uh, talks of the difference between a collective and a community. A collective, and he's writing in the 1930s, and he's no doubt aware of sort of Russian communist collectives. A collective is where everybody um, is forced to believe the same thing and behave in the same way, and in other words, to become part of a cult. What's characteristic of cults is that everybody holds exactly the same views, and if you challenge those views or if you depart from them, you are kicked out. A community, by contrast, is um, uh, a network of friendships and relationships that are held together by each individual's respect for the individuality of each other. And that allows each life within that community to flourish. <coughs> but perhaps the way that stream entry is almost um, always spoken uh, is not in these terms at all, but in terms of 
um, the losing or the abandoning of three fetters. And these are, in fact, this goes back to a very early source. This goes back to the Sutta Nipata. He says, at the same time, this is the Buddha, at the attainment of insight, three things become abandoned. Sakaya Diti, which I'll translate here basically as egoism, doubt, and what is called silabata, which means rules of virtuous conduct and vows. That's what it means, literally. Now that's Norm, K.R. Norman's translation. Rules of virtuous conduct, sila, and vows. These are abandoned at stream entry. Now, normally, that third one is translated as attachment to rites and rituals. That's not actually correct. Anyway, let's just briefly go through those three. Sakaya Diti, sometimes translated as the view of individuality. But actually the word Sakaya means whole body, and Diti is view. If you look at how it's described, um, it's very much um, an, a view in which you are invested in a solidified sense of me. What, um, what Temple called last night, rigid selfing. And there's a passage in the, um, the Nidana Sanyutta uh, by Ananda, and he compares, um, he, he, descri- he describes clinging, upadana, which is a sort of an intensification of grasping, as um, a kind of uh, intense egoism. And the image he uses, he says it's like a young man or a young woman who admires themselves in a mirror. Now this, of course, is Narcissus. I think what's being talked about here is a kind of narcissism. Uh, It's exactly the same image in the Greek myth of Narcissus who can't tear himself away from his own reflection in the mirror. We're self-obsessed, self-absorbed. Now, I suspect for most of us this is not pathological, but I think we know what he's talking about. In other words, in stream entry, um, that narcissism, at least momentarily, falls away. And I don't think this need be understood as some profound spiritual insight. It might be. But I think for many of us, we do have these experiences in life, even if we know nothing about Buddhism or meditation. Um, For many people, it's found when we're in nature, when we're alone in a forest or in a wilderness. And all of the habits of our urban mind, our social anxieties and ambitions, all of that kind of falls away. And people talk of experiences of feeling completely one with the natural world. In the Native American tradition, people go on spirit quests. And I think much of those experiences reported, again, are of the same order. You become intimate with the earth, with the plants, with the ground, with the soil, with the trees, with the sun, with the cold, with the stars. 
And in doing so, you realize very viscerally the, 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 the illusion, really, of all of this obsessive thinking about me. We also experience, I think, similar uh, things when we fall in love, when, in a sense, our boundaries dissolve uh, with another person. And there's this extraordinary sense of, of union, of oneness, of, of participation in something far grander than anything that my ego could ever provide. And, of course, in meditation. And I think for many of us, um, meditation is another way to arrive at these experiences where that narrow, constrictive sense of me begins to dissolve, begins to fall away. And that can be scary at times, because everything we've held on to as dear seems to sort of be evaporating. But it can also be profoundly liberating and opening and humbling as well. And again, such moments may not last very long. They might last just a few moments. But once we've had such experiences, and I suspect probably most of us have, uh, it's not the sort of thing we'll ever forget. We must be careful not to idolize them and Every meditation we do is about trying to get back to that experience I had in the forest. But we do, I think, need to honor them as very uh, confirming and validating experiences of opening up to the possibilities of another way of being in this world. Doubt falls away is the second of these fetters. And again, I think that's simply the, the flip side of confidence or sadar, faith as it's sometimes translated. But really I think it's confidence. Uh, it's a confidence in our own capacity to wake up, a confidence in our own capacity to, to practice, a confidence in the community that supports us the friendships that nourish us. We, don't, we may periodically say, why am I doing this? We may have moments of doubt, but at some level, we've tapped into a confidence that sustains us in difficulty. So that's the other element of, of stream entry, confidence, trust. And then the third one, the abandoning of rules of virtuous conduct and vows. Now, I think Buddhist orthodoxy is very, um, or has a lot of difficulty with this. And um, it sometimes qualifies it as silabata paramasa, which means attachment to virtues and vows, which I think is a good way of reading it actually. But we mustn't actually forget that in the earliest source we can find, it doesn't say paramasa, attachment to, it says virtues and vows. Now there's another passage that I found in the Udana, which is another collection of, I think, probably quite early uh, teachings. It's short, it's in the 
the Kudaka Nikaya, which is the collection of shorter texts like the Dhammapada, the Sutta Nipata, the Udana, the Itivutika, and others. And in the Udana, we find this passage. What has been attained and what is still to be attained, both these are littered with dust for a frail person. Those who insist on training, who insist on virtues and vows, pure livelihood, celibacy, and observances. This is one dead end. (laughs) And those who say, there is nothing wrong in indulging sensual desires, that is the other dead end. Both these dead ends cause the cemeteries to grow. And the cemeteries cause wrong views to grow. By not penetrating these two dead ends, some hold back and others go too far. Now again, when I first read that passage, I thought, wait a minute, I thought that was what we were supposed to be doing. (laughs) Uh, You know, training, virtues and vows, pure livelihood and so on. Um, So I double-checked it with the Pali, and that's actually what it says. Now, this is, of course, um, uh, another way of um, expressing what are called normally the two extremes. I have awoken to a middle path that avoids two extremes, or how I prefer to translate it, as dead ends. But the middle way here, seems to be a middle way between the dead ends of religion and the dead ends of worldliness. Something quite different from the dead ends of, of self-mortification and sensory indulgence, although maybe not. You see, self-mortification tends to be described in traditional Buddhism as doing ancient Indian ascetic practices, like starving yourself or standing on one leg for ten years or something like that. As though, once you become disillusioned with capitalist consumerism, you can think of doing nothing else but stand on one leg for ten years. That's not the case, obviously. So what does it mean? Um, self-punishment is how I've translated it. And I think that is very often a feature of religious life. We feel that we have to punish ourselves in some way. We have to somehow, if it's not hurting, it's not working. That Protestant idea, perhaps. And what this passage suggests, I feel, is that the Buddha seeks a middle way between both the self-punishing putting oneself down and adhering to strict regulations and rules that are dictated by some religious authority. That's one dead end. And the other dead end is saying, anything goes, let's just pursue pleasure, let's just get as much money as we can, let's try and get famous, let's try and be better than the other guy, let's divorce my wife and get someone younger and prettier, whatever it might be. And so, this I think is very challenging, actually. 
I think it's very challenging. But perhaps the most challenging bit is this idea that um, virtues and vows are somehow abandoned. The way I understand this um, is that once the path becomes your own, then your moral and ethical life is no longer determined by a simple adherence to rules and regulations. But it becomes far more a challenge to respond to whatever dilemma it is you're facing from the depths of your own understanding and the depths of your own compassion. This is um, what is sometimes called situation ethics. In other words, an ethics that is a middle way between what is sometimes called legalism on the one hand and antinomianism on the other. Antinomianism is saying there are no rules at all. There's no guidelines. You just do what you want and get what you want. And the other extreme is saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, killing's wrong, stealing's wrong. It gives you a list of rules, a list of precepts. And so when you meet an ethical dilemma, let's say a young woman who is having a very difficult pregnancy, she's got ten other kids, very poor, the child may be born deformed, she may die at childbirth, and you're asked, well, what is the, you know, what is the right thing to do here? And as a good Buddhist, you should say, okay, we refer back to the rule book, killing is wrong, the, you know, abortion is wrong. End of story. Very simple, very neat, very clean, and often deeply uncompassionate and cruel. The, 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 the challenge of that situation is not to apply some abstract precept, but to ask yourself the question, what is the most compassionate and wise response to this situation that's confronting me with this unique individual in this unique context? that the really difficult moral and ethical problems are not solvable by applying rules. The discussion we had yesterday about the, you know, the if you had a chance, if you knew someone was going to blow up a bus full of school kids with a suicide bomber's vest, what would you do? If you had the chance to kill them, would you kill them? That's the kind of situation that we struggle with. And that sort of situation is not solvable by just saying, this is the right thing, that is the wrong thing. You can't do that. I don't feel you can do that. So when this practice or this path becomes very much your own, when you are confident in this practice, when um, you have experienced moments of real openness and stopping, where you're cultivating these virtues, then ethics becomes more and more a question of appropriate response rather than right or wrong response. And that's not easy. 
because you might get it wrong. You might make things worse. You don't know. The ethical choice in that sense is always a risk. But that, I think, lies at the heart of of moral and ethical integrity. The willingness to take a risk. The willingness to act out of compassion, out of wisdom, or as much wisdom as you have, rather than fall back on some set of rules. Now the Sangha, or let's say the people who are acknowledged as stream entrants at the Buddha's time, um, are certainly not just monks or nuns. There's a passage here, this is Marjama 73, where the Buddha says, There are not only 100 or 500, but far more men and women lay followers, clothed in white, in other words, not wearing robes, enjoying sensual pleasures, who carry out my instruction, have gone beyond doubt, become free from perplexity, gained intrepidity, and become independent of others in the teaching. I think this is a very strong affirmation that um, the Sangha is totally inclusive. Nowadays, very often, you hear, and unfortunately you hear this a lot in Theravada school, when someone says, we're going to make an offering to the Sangha, it means the monks and the nuns. The Buddha never uses the word that way. Uh, Sangha refers to anyone who has entered the stream. Is Sangha. And there's a technical expression for this. It says the eight kinds of individuals. But it refers to anyone who has entered the Eightfold Path is Sangha. In other words, the lay, there are laymen, lay women, monks, nuns, all are Sangha. And if one of those people hasn't entered the stream, even a monk, they're not Sangha. So the, 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 the criterion is you're having committed yourself, having opened your heart and mind in such a way that you are now living in this way, in this fluid way, in this stream. And I'm going to conclude with a passage that I find very, uh, again, challenging in a way. Now on that occasion, Sarakani the Sakyan had died and the Buddha had declared him to be a stream enterer. Thereupon a number of Sakyans deplored this and they said, Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Now who won't be a stream enterer when the Buddha has declared Sarakani to be a stream enterer? Sarakani, the Sakyan, was too weak for the training. He drank intoxicating drink. Maybe he was the local drunk. When this was reported to the Buddha, and the Buddha said, if one speaking rightly were to say of anyone, he was a lay follower who had gone for refuge over a long time to the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha, it is of Sarakani the Sakyan that one could rightly say this. 
Now, this to me is another passage that has a great, um, a, a great chance of being original, going back to the Buddha for the simple reason that the monks who preserved the canon would not have, inv- wouldn't have been in their interest to add it later. <laughs> this seems to go against the whole image of the stream enterer as someone who's achieved a sort of elevated spiritual enlightenment. Here we have a man who's, who, who's, who, who, who in a sense fails, who in some sense is weak, who breaks the precepts. And yet the Buddha says, if anyone could rightly say of anyone, you know, this is a stream mantra, it's that guy. Uh, this again, I think, is like the passage we saw before about the, um, the sick monk. The Buddha says, whoever would tend to the sick, sorry, whoever would tend to me would tend to the sick. An identification with the weak, an identification with the suffering, an identification with those who keep failing in a sense. So this idea of Sangha is, 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 is a very inclusive one. It's not one in which we exclude people because they don't live up to a certain standard that we've set or the religion has set. But it's a community that embraces all of us who in a way have committed ourselves to live a certain way of life, who honor certain values, who cultivate certain friendships. It's not a kind of spiritual elite, but rather embraces, ultimately I suppose, all sentient beings in some way. But um, we need to stop here. And uh, there'll be one more talk tomorrow. And I'll try to pull the threads together by looking at the metaphor the Buddha uses of the city. Thank you.